Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we've been talking to people employed in fields threatened in one way or another by the Trump presidency. These are stories of difficult, important jobs, jobs that are going to get a lot more difficult and a lot more important in the years ahead. This week, our guest is Shania Thomas, a psychotherapist based at Whitman Walker, an LGBTQ health center in Washington, D.C. She's a licensed social worker. She talked to us about meeting with patients, getting to know them, and figuring out how to help them with whatever it is that they need. And also talks to us about how the rise of Donald Trump has affected the lives of her patients and her own life. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, she talks to us about the question a lot of people are discussing, whether we should be diagnosing, in our own armchairs, the mental life of Donald J. Trump himself. For that and other great Slate Plus exclusives, uh, you can start a two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Shania Thomas. I am a licensed clinical social worker and a psychotherapist at Whitman Walker Health in Washington, D.C. So what's the infrastructure like here at Whitman Walker? It's it's a free facility? So Whitman Walker Health as a health center is not necessarily free. Okay. So they do take insurance and they do take co-pays, X, Y, Z. But my program within youth services is okay. um, funded by the Office of Victim Services. Mm-hmm. So we have a grant from them um, to where we can service a certain population. And the requirements are, for one, you have to be between the ages of 13 through 24 Depending on the severity of the situation, we might take you up to 30, but we're mainly structured between 13 through 24. Mm -hmm. You have to identify along the LGBTQ spectrum, um, so check yes to any of those boxes, whatever that works for you. And you have to say that you've experienced a crime or a trauma. And like I said, that doesn't have to be a police report, but if you feel like it's something that is affecting your day-to-day life or a trauma that you experience, then we um, accept you. So your clinical focuses are LGBTQ youth, youth primarily. Yes. And w- what kind of services do you actually 
provide to them? What, what's your role? So the freedom is that we can do a lot of things. So uh, mainly I do individual therapy. I see clients kind of on an everyday basis. They have 50-minute sessions. From my clinical focus, I do a lot of um, trauma-focused therapy. So we talk about cognitive behavioral stuff, family stuff. Right now, of course, how politics is going right now is sure. a really big topic. So we'll get more into the details, but you're talking to them about their lives, about their experiences, about their feelings. But you said you do cognitive behavioral therapy. You're also trying to provide them with tools to change the way they they relate to those feelings, to those experiences, to those other people. Is yes, yes. Coping skills, um, helping them find different ways that they can have kind of a toolkit in their hand every day so they can take care of themselves when they're not in session with me. Um, so I like to give them stuff to take with them out in the world. And it seems to be helping. Um, and so that's always encouraging. And when it doesn't, they come back and we talk about the things that don't work. So let's take a step back. What kind of schooling did you do to start doing this kind of work in the first place? Sure. How did I get here? How did you get here? Um, <laughs> so uh, I was inspired to move into clinical work. Um, when I was in high school, I used to work in a hospital and did like candy striping work. So I did like <laughs> volunteer services. I had the really weird outfit on. Um, and somebody had mentioned, one of the patients had said, you actually would be a really good therapist. Um, I ended up going to Virginia Tech on a track scholarship and also majoring in psychology. By the time I got to my senior year, it was kind of like, okay, so how do I make a decision about what to do next? Mm -hmm. And in psychology, you're really just taught, you know, you're going to be a psychiatrist. That's kind of the next step, and you have to get your master's degree. So just mm -hmm. to, to clarify, the difference between psychiatrist and... Sure. So psychiatrists are, in a way, medical doctors. So they're licensed to prescribe medication. So they're more so hardcore, like diagnosis. We're doing medical interventions. These are what that looks like. These are like. the people who are cracking open the DSM. Absolutely, yes. Those are those folks. Um, psychologists, they can be therapists as well, um, but they just come from a different mindset in terms of, like, they have psychology degrees. Social work, we're more holistic in terms of how we tackle problems, so we're more of like a grassroots, um, working in community centers. We're also, um, we can be therapists, but we also can be case managers. So we have a little bit more broader scope in how we do practice and kind of all the systems that we include in our practice. So it's not just behavioral, but it's also biological. It's also um, political. It's also family systems. It's also how people connect around their identities. So we use all of those things within social work, um, which made the difference for me in choosing social work is social work is more of kind of just like, I don't want to be behind the desk. I want to be in with the people. Um, and not to say psychiatrists can't do that, but that's not my focus. My focus is kind of, I want to know from a client's perspective what I can do in order to help them improve their life, make that next step, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, the thing that inspired me to go into social work was my family. We always took a trip to Baltimore and D.C. during the summers when I was younger, and I went to the Baltimore Blacks and Wax Museum. And in going there, um, it made me kind of understand a little bit about my history, about where I come from and where my folks come from as a people. Um, and then walking out, I was just like, I want everybody to know this. Like, I want everybody to know how powerful they are. I want 
everybody to know like this is their history and to find ownership in that. And that led me to Howard University. So I went to Howard in 2004. Um, they oh, have their... And that's where you did? That's your, where I did my, um, my master's in social work. Okay. Um, so I have a master's in social work and a concentration in family and children. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of like my direct service work. So I went there. I did, um, most of my internships were really around schools. A lot of my kids were learning disabled or emotionally disturbed. So did a lot of clinical work with them, um, broke up a lot of fights, <laughs> wrestled, you know, um, really fought with a lot of my, my kids and my parents and administration on just like helping everybody do the best we can for this one child. And from there, um, I've always wanted to work at Whitman Walker. This has been always my dream job to be here. Um, what was so- it about this place that, that drew you in? So way back in the day and when I was in grad school, I was kind of struggling around my own sexuality and where I can get support around that. They had a black lesbian support group and I went there just to like meet friends and to come out and they were connected to Whitman Walker and I was just like, I want to like do this. Like I want to help bring people in and make them feel comfortable just as much as they made me feel comfortable. Were you always interested then throughout your training in looking at LGBTQ issues? I think I've always been interested, but I think a part of that interest was like in a selfish manner of just like trying to find out more about myself Mm -hmm. um, and trying to find out where I kind of land in the landscape of just like who I am. So one of the things I used to do before here is I used to be a program coordinator um, for an LGBT group up in Rockville. And being around those kids and being able to just like feel like I was a part of a system that I just didn't have when I was younger, that was really powerful to me. I mean, that has always been something that I've always wanted to give to other people, just like making space for them to be who they want to be without people feeling like they have to feel persecuted or et cetera. So. You've said that it's important to you to help people own their histories. When you first start to meet with a new patient, how do you start to attend to those issues? How do you start to learn who they are and and what makes them powerful? Sure. So we have an initial assessment process. So my kind of requirement is that I see people four times in a row. So I want you to come in and I want to basically get to know you. Every day or over the course of four weeks? This is like once a week. If I feel like they're more chronic, then we will bump it up to maybe twice a week. When you say more chronic, you mean that they're in crisis in some way? They're in crisis. They're having increased behaviors. um, They feel unsafe. We're a free program. Mm -hmm. So we have that flexibility to kind of just like build and cater to that individual person. So they come in. I give them kind of the same assessment sheet. I'm asking them about who they are, you know, kind of demographic information. Um, And then basically it's a conversation. Um, I always start off my sessions with what can I do for you? Because I want to give the structure of you're coming in this room to see me for something. There's something that I can help you with. And if I can't help you, I want to find out who can help you. So I know you can't speak about individual patients, of course, but can you tell us in general terms what sort of issues are bringing people here in those initial sessions when you're first meeting with new folks? Mm-hmm. Usually it's depression. Um, usually it's I'm having trouble sleeping. I'm having trouble getting out of bed. Um, I'm also having people come in around family issues. So you might have some people who are actually in the process of coming out to their family. That's also something that comes up a lot. Um, grief and loss. 
Um, and that's not just somebody dying, but it's a process or a change that's happened in their life. So they're moving from high school to college, or they're moving from high school to job, or they're moving from I finished college and now I have no idea what to do with my life. Um, so it's this really like interesting part of life where it's just like, I'm stuck in the middle and I really just don't know what to do. Like I'm young, but I'm old enough to know better, but I don't quite know better. Um, so some of it is just like, I need help moving from one place to another in my life, whatever that means to them. Um, and then from that, you might have these other symptoms that come up, such as like not necessarily eating, not sleeping. Um, some of them have issues around just like sexual health. So those are things that, you know, I talk about with them as well, because they don't have another safe place to talk about. Um, bodies and being queer and having sex they just don't know where to put that um so they'll bring it into sessions as well um relationship issues are always a thing um just kind of understanding how life is going in the climate that we're living in um so supporting people around that sounds like a real tangle of behavioral emotional and maybe also in many ways interpersonal absolutely all of that (laughs) at the same time sometimes (laughs) You've been listening to psychotherapist Shania Thomas. After this brief break, she talks about a typical day, how she makes the best possible use of her time. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. What is a typical day like for you? When do you arrive here at Whitman Walker? So I am part-time on staff. Um, I'll come in. I always greet the front desk staff because they're awesome. I mean, they help check my people in. I get set up in my office. Um, if I have a little time, then there's a Starbucks down the street and get my coffee ready. I like to work long days, so I'm a eight-to-eight person sometimes. Wow. Yeah. Um, I make sure that I have a break somewhere in there just to like breathe um but i like to when i'm here i like to just be here um people will come in they check in um i see them for 50 minutes each time i'll do my note afterwards and in a 10 minute slot you're, 10 you're minute still slot, working i'm still working yeah still working trying to purge all that stuff and i'll see the next person each hour is different so i'm working with just like different people with different issues um different lengths of time that they've been with me um and that's pretty Pretty much my day. Um, there are meetings, so we do have like behavioral health meetings on certain days. So all of the staff gets together and we talk. Um, I also am involved in the. We have just um, structured a race based trauma focus group here. Um, so a lot of the staff members have gotten together, and we're having 
awesome conversations about like how we are taking care of ourselves in terms of just like people of color, um, taking care of just like our clients, taking care of people of various different kind of identities and how are we recognizing those things and kind of the system that works here. Um, I can honestly say that this is the first <laughs> place that I've worked at where race has been an active conversation around privilege and oppression and how is this affecting our clients in the workplace because we are really committed to just doing the best service that we can for people who are here. How large is your clientele all told? How many people are you seeing at any given time? On my caseload, I would say on an average 16 to 18. Some of those people are every week. Um, some of them are kind of just like once a month. Um, and I have a couple that I see twice a week as well. And on one of those eight to eight days, how many people are you going to see? I'll have at least six, maybe on average six people. So about 50% of your 50. full day is spent in those, those Talking. sessions. Talking. <laughs> yes. And listening, I And listening, lots of listening. Is there such a thing as a typical session or is it just different every time with every person? Do you ever get bored? Do I get bored? No. I know I don't get bored. Um, typical sessions are usually... 50 minutes, I'm checking in about their day. So it's kind of the courteous, like, hey, how are you doing today? Um, and then uh, we move on to either where we started the previous week. They can also talk about kind of new stuff that's going on. So usually, most likely, they're holding on to like a week's worth of stuff and they want to like dump it all. Mm -hmm. um, I like to ask, or if they don't really have a place to start, I'll say like, hey, well, how's your partner doing? Or, you know, I know you brought up that that um, incident a couple weeks ago around your family. You know, what whatever happened with that? So kind of getting updates from them, that's helpful. Um, you check I do, those notes? from the previous sessions before I they come the in notes. or you just rely yeah, yeah, on your yeah. memory? I check those notes. Well, I check the notes um, and then also um, I remember stuff. So if I have a client, for example, that goes out of town and I don't see them, um, I'll know that I haven't seen them that previous week, but it's really good to just say like, hey, I haven't seen you in a week. Like what's, you know, what happened? I know you went on that trip. Um, you know, how did things go? So kind of getting an update from them. Um, I do, if, depending on kind of just like what they're coming in for, I do specialized things. So if I have a client that comes in and talks about, for example, um, sexual assault, we'll do a certain kind of structured therapeutic method where I go through and we talk about that incident piece by piece, what I call narrative therapy. So I actually help them tell the story about what happened piece by piece over time. Um, and in those sessions, we'll do like 10 minutes of like getting together and hey, what's going on? Tell me about your week. 30 minutes of like deep processing and then 10 minutes of, hey, let's kind of pull ourselves out of this so I can put you back together so you can go out into the world. Um, like I said, some of my clients, they're all about kind of like their life transitions or what's happening. So sometimes I'm doing a lot of taking big pieces of um, poster poster paper and I'm like drawing their life out. I'm just like, okay, let's do some like life planning. Um, and that's been helpful for people. Um, sometimes people just like to draw. So sometimes we'll just draw it together. Um, sometimes it's just a good place to talk about TV. So sometimes people come in and we talk about scandal because they don't really have anybody else to talk about that with. So it's different for everybody. Um, like I said, it's all about like, what do you need for me to do in this space with you today for these 50 minutes? Um, and they're either coming in prepared or they're just like, I just want to sit here because I just had a really wild day. And I'm just like, okay. So when you're first getting to know someone, do you, from your perspective, start 
with a goal or outcome somewhere that you'd like to get with them? Or is it really about where they're saying they want to go? It's really about where they are. Um, I have learned over the course of the years of being a social worker that you make the job harder when you put when I place a goal on them where it's just mm-hmm. like, I want wellness to look like this for you. And if they don't get there, then I get frustrated and that's not fair. So that's why I always start off with how can I help you? What can I do for you? Um, and if I see other issues that come up, like let's say that we're talking and there's a substance abuse issue that comes up or there was a past childhood sexual trauma that come up, I keep those things in the back of my mind. But if they don't feel like it's a problem in that moment, then that's not something that I make a problem for them. Um, and I might weave it or bring it up later on in a session, probably down the line. But at that initial point where I'm meeting them, I, I haven't built rapport with them to even talk about that in depth. Um, so that's why I kind of lead with where they want to go and what their goals are so they are more committed to the process it's not about me it's more about them what if what they want is more than you think you can offer what if they want to completely revamp their life in a way that just doesn't seem plausible do you try to pull them back at that point plausible for who sure you know so if you come in and tell me I want to lose 100 pounds next week. Okay, sure. Let's talk about what that looks like. And so as we're planning through what that weight loss goal looks like, if you eventually will see that that's not necessarily a plausible goal, then what I'll say is, okay, well, maybe this won't work. Let's try something else. Maybe we'll talk about doing five pounds. Maybe we'll talk about doing something in in a little bit more smaller bites instead of taking it all at once. Um, And that helps because I'm not saying no. Um, I don't want to turn people down and say that their dreams aren't possible, but I also want to say like, we can do this, but let's find other ways to do it in in ways that'll be a little bit more flexible and a little bit more manageable Mm -hmm. for you, especially this pain is not going to leave you tomorrow. You know, let's be realistic about where you are in terms of your trauma. Um, that makes them feel better. They leave, especially with some sort of sense of control, because I'm not taking it away from them. I'm not taking their opportunity to build goals away from them. I'm giving them the power to do so. But I'm also giving them the tools to break it down in a way that's a little bit more simpler for them. When stuff comes up that is not, that doesn't quite fit into the immediate flow of, of the conversation, the discussion, uh, of the session, how do you keep track of it? Do you just follow it in your head or are you taking notes? I take notes. Each session is a client note. So I have to go in and go through our system and make sure that we're putting in notes, making sure that I'm talking a little bit about the session. It's nothing too in-depth in terms of detail because I want to keep confidentiality. Um, But I do (laughs) figure that I have a very good memory. I remember things that come up, especially when people talk. For example, I have a client who's in a polyamorous relationship. And so they have relationships with all these other people and those people have details and those people are seeing other people. And then that person might break up with this one person. So they're dating this other person. And so it's not just about the client in front of me. I have to keep all of that in my head. How much of your time do you spend talking and how much of it do you spend listening? A day or per session? Per session. If I want to be honest, um, that depends on the client. I have some clients 
that are great where I just sit there and I'm like, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. tell me more. Oh, that's interesting. And that's a session. For some, they need a little bit more working and talking and processing. Um, so on sessions where I'm doing that, I try not to do, I try, my rule is 50%. If you can give me 50%, I can give you 50%. Um, so I try not to override too much in a session um, unless they really need additional support. So um, I like to always kind of, and, and if people are stuck, then I kind of like sometimes let them be stuck. Um, being stuck and sitting in silence is sometimes good for just like processing. And sometimes people just want to come in and be quiet. And that's okay too, um, because this is probably the most quiet that you have had all day. So I want to give you that space to do that as well. What are some of the tools that you fall back on, some of the the resources that you you deploy the things you suggest, whatever it is that you do when you're helping someone work through an issue or a behavior or something else? Sure. So my clinical background, so I was particularly um, skilled around object relations theory. So I am all about how the relationships that you have in your life affect the relationships that you have now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do a lot of connecting around just like, um, you know, the how you were raised around your in- environment, how you've interacted with the community. So I take a lot of things and add those things into our current sessions. Um, What I offer up to people is first off, let's find out the things that are working for you already. So if you're already a writer, if you're already somebody that's an academic, so I've had people come in and they're just like, you know, I like reading books, great. Here's some books that we can use in order to improve that. So I never turn down things that are already working for people. I also do a lot around just like somatic and um, and uh, and talking about like how people are feeling in their body. Um, so I do encourage exercise. I do encourage yoga. I do maybe some like grounding exercises and meditations in my office. So I'll have people if they feel like they're really hyped up, I'll have them sit in a chair and say like, hey, it looks like we're we're really feeling a lot of like stimuli right now. Put both feet on the floor. And let's just breathe. Um, and so I'll do some guided meditation with them in session. Um, I like to do those things in session as opposed to just giving them to them and leaving because I don't know if they'll be triggered. I don't know, you know, I don't know what's going to happen when I'm not there. So I like to kind of practice and do those things in session with them. A lot of writing, coloring books. Um, like I said, reading has adult been a coloring books. That, adult that coloring books, yeah, it's a huge thing now. So people love the coloring books. <laughs> um, also, I had I, I encourage music, so I encourage people to like listen to music. Um, I had one client that was really having a hard time struggling to process some grief issues. Um, And one thing that we did in session together is that we listened to music. And that just triggers a different part of your brain when you're processing emotions and certain things. And the ways that our um, sessions went, did they just dramatically improve? Um, Because we weren't just talking to each other, we were also stimulating other parts of the brain. I also like to connect people to other places outside of Whitman Walker. So there's this event that called Honey Groove that happens during the spring. It was based around queer women of color. They had like bands, they had art exhibits, they had all these things. I told all my clients to go. I said, go. <laughs> <laughs> go to that. Go see yourself in other things. Go see yourself in art. Go see yourself in music. Because sometimes the reason why they come in is because they feel isolated. I don't have any friends. I don't know who else to talk to about this. And so when there are things that are happening in the environment, I like to say, like go please go and enjoy yourself Um, because I want you to make those connections I'm not going to be here forever Um, so if I always have you come in and rely on me to help you with something um, and I'm not here then what happens
You've been listening to psychotherapist Shanae Thomas. After this brief break, she talks about political climate, tells us how it's shaping the lives of her patients and affecting her own work. In my own experience, uh, sometimes easy as, as a patient in a therapeutic setting to, to direct some of your feelings at your therapist. I, does that happen to you? Do you have people just like dumping their emotions on you and at you, their anger, their their frustration, and so on? Mm-hmm. I expect it. I want to build a space where I am a safe place where you can do that with me. Um, my job as a clinician is to know when that is about me and when that is not about me. Mm-hmm. And 98% of the time is not about me um, mm-hmm. if you're lashing out at me. It's coming from somewhere. The job is that I have is just like trying to figure out where it's coming from. When they're just doing that transference onto you, do you tell them or do you just let it flow usually? That depends on where they are in terms of their consciousness around doing it. Um, So if I, and also rapport building. So if I'm in a place where I haven't built like the substantial rapport with you, you're not ready. I'll keep that in the back of my mind, but you're not ready for me to say like, hey, have you ever thought that this thing that you're doing or saying is really not about me? Like they can't, (laughs) you know, you can already see how that can be a little bit like, you know, triggering. So sometimes I'll hold it if they're in crisis. So I've had people do that, particularly in crisis and get really upset. My job is not to call them out on their stuff right then. They're Mm -hmm. just not in a place to do that. My job is to help keep them as safe as possible. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that means taking it, you know, not, not in terms of just like if they're being abusive or if they're cursing at me but some of that might be just like yeah I want to hear that like tell me more because I'm probably the first person that allows them to do that in a safe space as opposed to you going out there and doing that in the street and getting upset with somebody and, and getting into altercation um, so so it for me it's uncomfortable um, but I also know that you're probably doing that with me because I'm the safest person that you were able to do that all day what happens if the situation starts to escalate if their anger starts turning physical. So what we do, what did the, what the kind of, we have a security guard that walks around. So this place is pretty secure in terms of just like where we are on this floor. Um, I, there's other clinicians around. So there's always somebody at the front desk that can help. Um, so I can call other people. Um, if we feel like somebody's in a place to where they, um, they need additional assistance or they need like a higher level of care, um, that we can call the mobile crisis unit. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I avoid trying to call the police because sometimes that escalates people a little more. But we try to at least, at least the mobile crisis units are a really good um, set of people that come in and they can help transfer them to a what hospital. Is, so is the mobile crisis unit? In DC, yes. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So is, it's like... A medical service? Or? They're they're mental health professionals. Okay. So you give them a call. Um, I've been working with them forever, especially when I worked in high school. So they're a really good set of really skilled clinicians. You give them a call. You can say, hey, I have this person of this age. This is kind of what's going on. They're being physical. They're not really being safe in their body. They're talking about hurting themselves, talking about hurting other people. So they'll come out and they'll have a conversation with the client and, see, and, and assess to where they can either be de escalated in that moment or do we need to take them to a higher level of care and that is either a hospital that's a psychiatric hospital that's um, psychiatric institute of washington it could be george washington hospital Um, so you have places where people can go but we don't take care of when people get to that point we don't physically do that we allow other people to do that Mm -hmm. it seems like you have to keep 
pretty close track of time while also remaining engaged with them. Is there a trick to that? You feel it. I think first, before I check a clock, because people notice when you check a clock, I feel it. So it's just like, so when I know that, okay, what feels like we're getting to that time, I'll look at the clock and say like, okay, well, it's time. It's it's about that time. So some of it is intuitive, um, but some of it, depending on the offices I have, they're strategically placed to where there's one on the wall that's Mm -hmm. behind the person. You might have one that's on the table. So you have different clocks in different places. So you're not turning around and um, and making it obvious that you're checking time. Nice. When you think about the arc of your sessions with a given person, does therapy sometimes just end naturally or is it, uh, to paraphrase Freud, uh, an interminable process? Mm, depends. So I'll have clients, they leave. So they just disappear. <laughs> so you have the you have some that are just like I'm done. Um, there are some where I'm just like, hey, actually, it feels like you know things are looking up, things are getting a little better. How about we scale back? So I never terminate people immediately. I like to give them kind of like a month or so before and have a conversation from there. But I'll say like, hey, how about we try every other week? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that moves to how about we try every other month? And there are some clients on my caseload that I'll see every now and then or that they'll just pop up and say hey I kind of need a tune-up session um, and I'll do that for them but it's really different for everybody but either people decide for themselves we make that decision together or they do it and they're just like you know what I think I want to try on my own and and then you know I'm kind of like a mama bird where I'm just <laughs> like okay <laughs> you sure and they're just like yeah I'm ready I'm ready to do this um, and I always tell them you know what I want you to give it a try and if you feel like you want to come back please Please feel free to come back. So there's never a time where I'm terminating with you and there's never a time for you to return. So we leave you, we kind of leave you on our caseload, but we just, you know, scale you back until, you know, you call. So what's it, what's it like though, when someone just stops coming and doesn't call and there is no conversation about it, you've been building this professional relationship with someone for months, maybe, maybe longer, and suddenly they're just gone. Do you worry in those moments? Do you try to reach out? What's your professional responsibility there? Our, the thing that we do professionally is that we will reach out to you at least three times. So we'll call, we'll text if you allow us to text you just to check in. Um, we've sent letters home. So we do kind of at least three attempts, what we call it. We'll do three attempts before we close out your case. Personally, I freak out. <laughs> So I'm worried, you know, where are you? What's going on? Are you okay? I'm all about just let me know that you're fine. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, for me, and that's something that I have to always check for myself because maybe that person is actually making a responsibility of just like, you know what, therapy is not for me or I don't need this anymore, et cetera, and they leave. And maybe that's also just their pattern in life. Maybe just leaving and disappearing is a thing that they do. I'm not used to that because I built a relationship with you for a couple months. Um, so professionally, we leave it at the three attempts and then I try to not do more. Um, but personally, yeah, I get worried because we have built a relationship with each other, um, especially if you tell me things that I'm worried that, you know, that would worry me or that would worry you or that you feel like you can't resolve for yourself. Um, then it's, you know, yeah, you it's like a friend walking out the door. kind of. Yeah. A lot of the people that you work with are people who are marginalized, who are threatened in one way or another, just 
by living in society as it exists now. Um, but I wonder whether the political climate has intensified the urgency uh, of their experiences. Have things changed for you or the people that you see uh, in your work since the election? Yes. So I wouldn't say um, I wouldn't say that we're having more people come in. I would say as far as my caseload, the things that we talk about have shifted. Um, the fears that they have have shifted. Um, overall, as an organization, we are talking more about kind of just like the worries people have as far as the Affordable Care Act, worries that they're having in terms of immigration, um, and how can we support people around that. My group of people, the focus is either what in the world's going on? <laughs> like, I just don't know what's going on in general. What's going on with me in terms of what's going on within the system? And also, what can I do? Um, what is the thing that I can do and still stay safe? Because um, I can't do much. Mm. So um, I think the nature of the conversations that we're having, and it's hard because I am also a marginalized person. So mm. I'm trying my best to hold them and give them hope as best as possible. And I'm also just like emotionally exhausted by kind of what's going on in just the world living yeah I just live yes just really getting up and trying to and and making it day to day like it's it's difficult yeah. um to, does it does it make it harder for you to just go about your own business to be helping all these other people carry that burden as well it's gotten harder I've noticed it gotten it had gotten harder after Orlando had happened, mm -hmm. um, and I realized the how shooting at the Pulse nightclub. Yeah, Pulse nightclub. So I, when I realized how close, how closely tied me working here is also really closely tied to my clients, who are also really closely tied to my identity, mm -hmm. then I had to be more vigilant around how I took care of myself. Um, that week that I had, I was out of town, but I had came back. Um, during the the Pulse nightclub shooting, it happened. That was uh, Pride Week for us. Yeah. So this whole street, 14th Street, had Pride flags and signs, and it had the leftovers of what was happening that weekend. But for my clients, that was triggering to them. Like mm -hmm. they had talked about, just like it's hard. It was hard to walk down the street to come here because this remind me of the other thing that's happening and the threat that's happening out there. And you can really tell of also just like the mood before election and after election. So before everybody had this hope and was doing the activism work and really rooting for Hillary and doing all the things, right? So everybody's really excited. Um, and then that week afterwards, people came in and they were just like, I have no idea what to do. Um, and I'm really concerned, especially for my trans clients. Mm. Um, recently, there have been conversations or worries around just like, am I going to be able to have my surgery? What's going to happen with my hormones? You know, how am I going to have access to care? Like what... What can I do? Also, you know, people coming in and telling me that they've gotten harassed in the street or people have been yelling stuff at them um, and having to take that as a therapist and hold it for them and also realize, like, there's nothing physically that I can do to make them feel safer except provide this really safe space for them to vent. Um, so it's a lot. It's a lot to take home with you, too. <laughs> so yeah, but when someone comes in feeling hopeless, maybe also helpless, what can you do for them? I mean, you can't, you can provide that safe space, uh, but is there any other way to assure them or is that just not your job? S Ooh. 
that's not my job. I can't pry. I can't promise you something I can't give you. You know, I can't. I can't do that. I think what I give them is the affirmation that that experience is happening for them um, and coming up with solutions on what to do next. Um, so if you feel really depressed and the next solution for you is to um, take a day off tomorrow, if the solution for you is to, yeah, go chain yourself up at the inauguration <laughs> and fight, if you can do that, if those are things that are helpful to you, then yeah, go do them. Let's talk about how to do them safely. Let's talk about the, Let's talk about you know any of the precautions that you need to take for yourself to make sure you have a job and a place to stay and things to eat like let's make sure that we talk about those things but yeah I don't I don't think my job is to give you hope with something that I just don't have the ability to do but I can give you that safe space to talk more about um, how to take care of yourself mm. how to be safe um, and to encourage you to do things that are going to be positive in the world so do you feel like you're making the world better by doing this yeah, I feel like we're holding the world up right now. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, shout out to Behavioral Health because we are, we're doing it and we're feeling it. But we're doing it. We're showing up. We're here for these clients. We're trying to give them space. But yeah, therapists, clinicians, healers, all of us, we're holding the world up right now. So yeah, hug your local therapist if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is working at slate.com. Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai, and the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.